Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedarico and Daniel Coca. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, we are speaking with Paul Sundin. Paul is a CPA and tax strategist. He's a partner at Sundin & Fish PLC in Chandler, Arizona, and the founder and owner of Imperion, a retirement structuring firm. With a worldwide client base, Paul specializes in tax planning and tax structuring for individuals, entrepreneurs, and for the real estate industry. In addition to being a CPA, he is also an author, speaker, and consultant. His professional mission is to educate taxpayers on tax policy, personal finance, and retirement planning. With over 20 years of experience, Paul provides a comprehensive and personal approach that's different from most CPAs, as you will hear in this episode. His approach starts with educating his clients on effective and practical ways of reducing their tax liability and achieving their financial goals. He brings a depth of insight and personal engagement to his client services. During our in-depth discussion with Paul, we dive into the world of taxes, specifically as it relates to how real estate investors should envision tax planning and preparation, how different investment types will affect their tax liability, and the types of retirement accounts that maximize tax savings regardless of one's stage in financial growth and development. Our very thorough conversation delves into the various advantages and disadvantages of investing in real estate, covering the mechanics of tax deductions from investment income to different structures for your real estate investment, including pros and cons, and the most important things to consider when investing in multiple properties each year. We also talk about the merits of the defined benefit plan. As this retirement vehicle is not well known, but can be a significant boon to wealthy investors who want to increase their yearly retirement contributions beyond the limits of a 401k or an IRA. This is a highly educational and interesting episode that will give you the knowledge you need to better understand taxes and retirement planning, including what may be changing with the new administration and how to prepare for those changes going forward. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Sure. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I know you, we've worked together for many years and you have such a deep experience in real estate tax planning amongst other things. And so we really, really appreciate you coming on to just share so much of your knowledge and expertise with everyone. You also write for some pretty well-known publications and, 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 and so it's really great to have you. And like we talked about before the show started, like there's really two main categories that we want to cover today. One is real estate investing and the tax implications and kind of some tax questions there. And then retirement planning, specifically something called a defined benefit plan that I'm really excited to, to learn about. And so, so these are really the categories like we, 
like we said, because as investors, right, we're always so focused on the making of money. Like what are the returns and what are the distributions and, you know, whether that's the passive cash flow, capital appreciation, but there's this fundamental piece to the investing that we all need to understand more in depth, which is the taxation and this idea of keeping more of, of what we make. So, so let's start with that, like some general real estate taxation questions, you know, the most basic one, what are, what are some of the tax benefits of investing in an equity syndication? Great. Yeah. I get this question all the time. Equity syndications, any sort of real estate in and of itself is going to offer the biggest benefit is going to be the depreciation. And you see a lot of syndications where they're value add deals, right? Someone comes in, sponsors putting a big chunk of money, they're going to fix up the property, exit it in five years or whatnot, hopefully with a large capital gain. So what that typically means is in the early years, you're generating some losses, you're getting depreciation. And in addition to that, you're also getting some distributions. And so as you're getting cash distributions, those aren't taxable to you. They can be in some situations, but generally speaking, they're not taxable, but you're getting some tax losses. And so the biggest advantage is the fact that, you know, you're not paying any taxes on any of the distributions at the end of the, at the end of the, the hold period. Once you get a sale, you've got some capital gains, but presumably that's going to be at a much lower tax bracket. And then you also can take all those losses that you've accumulated over that period of time. So a lot of tax advantages, in fact, if you've got multiple syndications going on, you may have an exit on one where you've got a capital gain, but you're able to take some losses on another one because of the passive uh, loss rules. And so you can use losses from other activities to offset gains. So very, very tax efficient for the equity deals. That's for sure. So let me ask you a quick question, Paul. Whenever we chat with investors who are trying to get exposure into real estate for the, the first time, let's say, right? And, and this is something that, you know, I thought about as well as, as I was at that point in my journey, which is, well, what do I do, right? Do I, you know, buy a, a property and, and, you know, fix and flip it or, or, or rent it, or do I try to do something passively? And I think a lot of those people oftentimes think the tax benefits for owning myself, you know, substantially outweigh, you know, whatever kind of time and money and additional risk that I need to put into a project. I'd be really interested just to get your thoughts on, on the difference and, and how investors should be thinking about that distinction as they evaluate potentially investing in a passive deal. Well, I, I guess as far as I look at it, I mean, I, I would say in a perfect world, you'd own all the real estate yourself. But the, the problem you've got is I've got a lot of clients that are physicians, consultants, attorneys, and the reality is they just don't have the, the motivation or the ability to manage a property. So I think if you've got a lot of money and you've got the ability and interest to be a landlord, I think that's a great option for you to take. But for a lot of people, they just have to start off and just try to understand a little bit about the real estate deals. Maybe they've only got 10, 20 grand, a rather small amount, which for all the appreciation in real estate we've seen, it just doesn't get you as much. And so I think doing a syndication deal can be a great way to, to start for a lot of folks. And I actually have some clients that, you know, they have the money to do their own real estate deals, but again, they just don't have the motivation to manage it. So they just do syndications only. So yeah, to each his own, I guess, depending on your motivation. So yeah. So I guess that also really speaks to like knowing your goals and, you know, really like understanding, you know, understanding yourself. And like you said, your motivation, like 
you know, really getting into like what's involved in active, right? Right. Like sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times people get into flipping and they might've even heard about or, or attended one of those seminars where it's like, oh, here's like fast flipping and like wholesaling and all this kind of stuff. And then in reality, it's, it's obviously never going to be as simple as, as they really make it out to be. And so, right. And so then there's like, then they come in and then they start to learn about, about syndications and, you know, something that I wanted to actually ask about, because a lot of people get into like hard money or they understand the debt space and the lending space, which is also another way. I mean, there's so many ways to make money in real estate, right? Tax liens, like that runs the gamut, but let's talk really quickly from a taxation perspective too. And maybe just an ad, like strategic perspective, what's the difference between an equity and a debt investment as a real estate investor? Certainly. So the, the equity deals are going to be similar to what I kind of previously discussed, where the, you get a lot of depreciation, a lot of losses early on, because you're actually a, a, a partial owner in the, the property, and it's going to it's going to flow through to you via the, the LLC and it's going to flow through to you. So you get some of the ownership benefits of the depreciation. But when you look at a debt deal, debt deals are going to generate interest income and interest income is probably one of the, the least favorable types of income, just because there's not a lot that you can have to offset it. There's interest expense and a couple other things, and it is taxed at your highest ordinary tax rate. So Again, real estate equity deals, very much more tax effective outside of, say, a retirement plan, interest deals, hard money deals, probably some of the most stringent tax and, and highest tax rates. But they also lend themselves to complexity as well on the tax filing side, because debt deals are typically a lot more, a lot easier for people to report on their taxes. Whereas when you look at an equity deal, if you've got something in a state I'll get people that have syndications in five different states. Well, you technically have to file a tax return in five, five different states on your personal tax return. So even though there's a lot of tax advantages, a little bit more tax headaches, uh, debt deals a little simpler, but maybe not as, not as favorable on the treatment of the income itself. Yeah. And, and so, so just like along those lines too, then, cause we get this question, we get this question a lot and because I always lead, like, I'm not a CPA, I can't give tax advice. And so it's great to have you so that you can really answer the question. Should one hold an equity syndication in like an, like an, a retirement vehicle versus holding debt in a retirement vehicle. And what are some of the pros and, you know, pros and cons around that? Absolutely. Yeah. I get this question all the time as well. You, as a general rule, you want equity deals to be taxed to you personally because of the depreciation and everything like that. So that's going to flow through to you personally. Whereas for a debt deal, if you've got the option for both, if you've got money in both, you know, retirement plan, like a self-directed IRA, and then you've got cash, you put the cash into the equity deal, the debt deal goes into the self-directed IRA. And that's a, a few reasons, not only because of the tax advantages that we just discussed before and the disadvantages of having a debt deal personally, but also there's what's called UBIT. I don't want to get too, uh, too detailed into this, but there could be debt financing income where there can be certain equity investments that you can have to file a tax return every year. People think that, oh, it's in an IRA. I don't have a tax problem. Well, 
you know, you can have the investment in the IRA. It doesn't mean you don't potentially have a, have a tax issue if you've got debt financing income, um, but you don't have any UBIT issues, no restrictions uh, for interest income deals. So in a perfect world, all your debt money goes into qualified plans, IRAs, all your equity deals would go outside of that and probably flow through to you personally. Yeah. But I, I do see people that, you know, they got a couple hundred grand and, and they're just chomping at the bit to be an equity owner. And so they'll do it in a plan. I mean, it's, you, you can do it. You just have to understand, you know, and get with your accountant to understand if you've got any sort of UBIT or other, other problems associated with it. So over the last three to five years, let's say, you know, at Alpha, we've seen an increasing number of investors who, you know, want to invest in with through their self-directed IRA. And, you know, the vast majority, 95% of opportunities you see from us will, will be equity. And, you know, we often have a high level conversation about UBIT, but the reality is I don't think most people even know that it exists or understand what their obligations are. Could, could you just chat at a really high level? Like how, how should an individual be thinking about UBIT on an equity deal if they're investing through a self-directed IRA? Yeah, certainly. No, I agree with you. UBIT is a very unique area. And in fact, most CPAs aren't aware of it and kind of don't deal in that space. And, uh, and what it stands for is it stands for unrelated business income tax. It's essentially the taxation in a, in a trust, in a tax-exempt trust, the taxation of any items that would be not subject to the actual utilization of the, or how do I say, not, not subject to the exempt purposes, which would be interest income and things of that nature. For example, you see it a lot if someone were buying a business, like you can't go out and buy a business through an IRA and not incur some sort of tax because we're trying to level the, the playing field with other business owners, so to speak. But how you see it is specifically for a debt deal is there's something called unrelated debt financing income, UDFI, and it has to do with the leverage associated with it. And to the extent you've got earnings that exceed essentially gains over $1,000, you don't typically see it in early years of, of a deal because you've got a lot of losses. But when you do sell it for a gain, to the extent that you've got gains that were utilized based on a leverage in the deal, those gains can be subject to a UBIT tax, which, you know, based on current rates, you know, I, I don't see it that much because a lot of times people have losses from other deals to offset it. So I don't see the UBIT. I also find that a lot of sponsors don't give the accountants the the debt financing income necessarily, or the debt balances in the tax returns. So it's usually not a big deal, but in theory, it's out there and it exists and it is somewhat hard to quantify. But I do have a handful of folks that if they want to do it, they've got a lot of deals out there. We just analyze it every year, determine if there's a UBIT issue and, and file any tax return. But usually it's very negligible in anything they might own. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to transition very briefly to the K-1 world, you know, something that for us, I, I think is always a crazy time of year. And I'm not going to ask you why we never get our K-1s by April 15th. But, but that aside, I do want to ask you about how individual investors should think about their filing obligations in different states. And if you have a passive loss on your K-1, meaning there's no income to declare, and I own a property in, you know, I don't know, California, for example, do I need to file, you know, in 
California, just because I have, you know, an investment there that hasn't generated any economic return, at least on paper, or is that my option? Like, how should an individual investor be thinking about this, particularly in the context of trying to build up a diversified portfolio and not wanting to have, you know, eight to 10 K-1s a year spread over five years. And before you know it, you got 50 K-1s a year. How should people think about that? Yeah, I hear you. It is a tough situation. They have up until, I mean, sponsors, syndicators uh, for any sort of partnership return has up till September 15th to actually get you your K-1s, which again is horrific for a lot of people who want to file early. I would say most K-1s that I see, most folks will get them out mid-March is sort of a good general idea. It also depends on the deal and how clean the records are and the time frame and all that type of stuff. But so, you know, it, it is definitely an issue. And I think for a lot of people and a lot of my high-end, you know, or, or clients with high net worths or business owners are typically filing extensions anyways. So I, my guess would be maybe half of the folks that you guys have as investors might routinely file extensions. So it's not that big of a deal, but you've obviously got a few people, you know, you've got your 5% that are really pestering you for those K-1s and really want them. So I think for the most part, if you're going to do deals like these, you have to be prepared to have to file extensions, which is, it's a pain for some people, but it's just part of, of doing business. As far as filing in the different states, here's sort of what I would say is if you've got a loss in a given state, state tax rules are all different, of course. And, but the basis is that the state, obviously, if you've got control of a property in a state and the state, you sell it, and you make money, the state wants its money. Now in the early years, if there's a loss, the state doesn't necessarily care about that loss. In fact, a lot of, a lot of um, states have minimum filing requirements. So it's not that you necessarily have to file, but the problem is if you have a loss, let's say in year one, $1,000 and you file for four years and you have losses, and then the year five, you sell the property, you get a $4,000 gain. In theory, you're supposed to file that loss in year one. You carry those losses forward, kind of like what people are used to doing on the federal level. Year four or year five, you sell for the gain. The prior losses offset that. The tax liability goes away. So Again, you might not legally have to file in the given state, but to pick up those losses and carry it forward, you really should. And I think for, for investors that are doing a lot of deals in different states, you just got to be cognizant of it. We've got, what, eight, nine some odd states that have no taxation of these types of deals, you know, Florida, Texas, Wyoming, some of the larger ones. If you're going to be, you know, if you're going to be in, and maybe a lot of people, a lot of your investors probably do live in California, so it's not as big of a deal, but you know, you may want to do deals selecting, selective, be selective in certain states. Maybe you're just going to do three in New York and three in, you know, you know, Florida where you don't have a state income tax or something like that. But yes, if you do 10 deals in 10 different states that have income tax, could be a headache for you. Yeah. When, when we, when we structure our alpha funds, even though we, you know, in the mandate, we're going to invest, let's say in 10 to 12 projects we're going to minimize that to five to seven states, possibly some that are, that are, you know, that don't have the filing so that all of us don't have to have, you know, 12 different, 12 different K1. So even at the level of the fund, when we do the fund, that's part of our strategy as well is to try to like build a bit of a, of, of a concentration. And so that's always something that, that we let investors know. So that's, that's like, it's just like part of the strategy, right? Like diversification is great, but sometimes you can go overboard if you don't 
understand the implication because someone's got to file those tax returns and you know, do you have a good CPA? Are they going to like overcharge? Are they going to, you know, are you going to do it yourself? Like there's, you know, there's a lot of those things and same with that, you know, with the SDIRA kind of question. And so I actually want to get into, you know, I want to get into the defined benefit plan and the work that, that you're doing, that you're doing there. So, you know, you have this long history, like within real estate and, and like you do a lot of work with international investors as well. I'm kind of curious, like, the nexus of this new, it's more than a project. It's like an arm of your business, but kind of tell us how you got there. And then we can get into what, you know, what a defined benefit plan is and who it's for, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit of background. You know, I've been a CPA for 25 some odd years and I did have, and I, and I certainly do have a heavy real estate background, but I've got a lot of high income clients, a lot of self-employed clients, a lot of physicians, consultants, attorneys, things of that nature. And, you know, I, I saw more and more where I'd have someone who would come to me and say, hey, I'm going to make, uh, you know, half a million dollars this year and man, I'm going to get creamed in taxes. You know, what can I do? And, you know, and typically these folks, you know, you, you do see them for people in their 20s and 30s sometimes, but typically they're, you know, a little bit older, a little bit more mature business. And so I would get heavily and much more involved in working with actuaries on setting up defined benefit plans and cash balance plans. You may have heard that, that phrase before. It's a type of a defined benefit plan. And so I got heavily involved with actuaries doing that probably 10 plus years or so ago and just got to a point where about five years back, we decided to kind of break out my separate company called Imperian. And that's pretty much all we do is we structure the plans to be tax efficient. We administer the plans and, and set them up for clients and, and help guide them through the process. You know, we, we do have clients that invest in uh, debt deals and all kinds of other things like that. So you know, it was sort of a natural evolution of my tax business, again, because so many people are looking for tax deductions. And I think most people think the tax rates are going up. So I think there's a, a bigger focus these days on getting tax deductions on the front end. And, and so we, we plan to have a lot more business on that side here in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is like a total like noob question, I guess, but you know, is a defined benefit plan, like, is that like a, an annuity? Is it like life insurance? Is it, is it part of the taxation code? Like what, like really, what is that? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes people do think of it like an annuity. And I think it's because the calculations are done, assuming there's going to be an annuity payout at retirement. But in reality, that doesn't happen. It gets terminated and rolled over into an IRA. But I'll, I'll just go back to some of the basics. A defined benefit plan is, you know, people are very familiar with 401ks and IRAs. We know you can't get a lot into IRAs. You, you know, you can get you know, up to $57,000 into a 401k, but there's other limits. A defined benefit plan is sort of like a 401k on steroids. If you're self-employed person, you know, you can get, I got a guy yesterday, he made $2 million last year. Between him and his wife, we're probably going to get about six, $700,000 into the plan for him. And he's going to get a full tax deduction for the entire amount. And he's going to get tax deferred growth. So it's, it's for a lot of people, just think of it as a very, very large uh, 401k that's a bit more complex because 401ks are what we call defined contribution plans. They define the limits up front, right? They say, this is the max amount you can put in. 
whatever happens to money happens to money. It doesn't matter if it grows to a million dollars or whatnot. Whereas in a defined benefit plan, we're looking to get, for example, $3 million into an account for an individual by age 62. So if you're 50 or so, the closer you are to that age, the more money you can put in. And to answer your question about annuities, you can basically invest. Our plans allow essentially self-direction. So people do syndication deals. People do Most people will do stocks, bonds, mutual funds, traditional stuff. But you absolutely can do hard money, real estate, any type of stuff you want to do. There's a few more complexities involved. And you still have some of the UBIT rules that we discussed. But if you've got someone who's looking to get, you know, large money into a plan, you know, half a million dollars in, there's just, you're not going to be able to get that with a 401k or any other type of structure, you know? Wow. That's really, really interesting, especially for, for all of so many of our investors as well of, you know, you know, they're like a lot of them are doctors and professionals or they've like startups they've exited. And, and so this is amazing. It's really great information. So, so, you know, the, the next logical question is like, there's a lot of the benefits, like what might be some of the cons? So, you know, we've gone over some of the pros, but what might be some of the, some of the drawbacks and who are these not for? Yeah. So obviously the pros speak to themselves, you know, that's for sure with the big front end tax deductions. The cons are really the fact that, you know, the plans are more complex. We have an actuary that calculates all the numbers. The funding is going to vary year by year. But generally speaking, the biggest cons that we see are the permanency related to the plans. In fact, a 401k is elective. You can choose not to do it in a given year if you don't want to. These plans, the IRS says, are required to be permanent. So you have to have them for at least a few years, I would say minimum three years, usually not a problem for a physician or an attorney or some professional. That can be a problem though for a real estate agent, for example. If I talk to a real estate agent who's making a half a million dollars this year, who knows what's going to happen to the market where she's at next year and, and, and who knows, and there could be some, some more complexities. So people don't like the the, the permanency of the plans that require a contribution, albeit maybe a small contribution if you have a down year, they are a little bit more cost expensive to maintain. Typical plan might cost you two to $3,000 a year, which again, isn't that big of a deal if you're putting a hundred grand in. And so when we look at who they're not for, you know, if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I want to get 30, 40 grand in, I'm, I'm a sole proprietor. It's just me. 401k, best option, self-directed, can do whatever they want with it. You know, if, and if their business is kind of jumping around a little bit, good income this year, you know, not so sure about next year. Really, as you start getting consistent income, 75 grand a year plus is what you want to put into a plan. And typically these things are age and income driven. So the older you are, the better. So typically people, the numbers start getting a little more favorable, mid forties, or so as people get a little bit older, the older, the better, uh, the more you can get in. And of course, the higher the income. So those are some people that they, you know, kind of that, that maybe it wouldn't work so great for, as well as a few that does work well for. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've got the, the so important to know, right. Cause off the bat, you think, wow, if I can put $500,000 a year into it, that's great. But then what if next year I make like zero money. And so you have to like balance that out, which I'm sure as you go into it, like you do all the, the planning for it. So, you know, speaking of planning, what are some of the deadlines that, that people need to be aware of when setting up these plans? 
Yeah, good question. It used to be that a defined benefit plan had to be opened up by December 31st, but you could fund them up to the date you filed your tax return. But the SECURE Act came out recently, and the SECURE Act came out last year and basically said you can now open these plans up to the date you file your tax return, as long as you open them and fund them. So you probably you know, want to get it opened and established a couple weeks before you're going to file your taxes. But, and then of course you got to open up the plan and, and, and the account and all that type of stuff. So you want to allow yourself a few weeks, but it is a great option for people to open them up late, fund them before they file their tax returns. We often give ranges, maybe someone might have a range of hundred grand, 200 grand. They can find out what their numbers look like with their accountant and then finalize all the funding for that right before the deadline. So the deadlines have gotten very loose. I mean, basically get a plan open and get it funded before you file your tax return. So it's one of the few things out there on the tax on the on the retirement plan side that you can open up and fund this late. A lot of the the SEP rules, a lot of people have heard of SEPs. SEPs have very similar flexible rules, but SEPs just generally don't allow you to get much in 20, 30, 40,000 dollars into a plan. So uh, the deadlines have gotten very very lax. And we will, we will have many people making good incomes that'll be very surprised a few months from now when their accountant just tells them or they stumble across us and they're like, hey, I'm going to carve off, you know, $100,000 off my tax bill for, you know, 2020 and there. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, did you want to jump in? Well, yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, how do I, how do I find someone like you? Like, what should I be looking for? Right? Like a, a lot of people don't know that this is out there. And so- to that person, what would you say? Well, you're right. Good point. I mean, a lot of 90% of financial advisors don't understand these plans, don't deal with them. CPAs don't understand them. It's just not what your traditional CPA does because there's a real tax advantage, uh, tax uh, planning component. And unfortunately, a lot of CPAs don't do a good job of tax planning. It, you know, it is really tough. I mean, we're we're unique in that we're third-party administrators, but we're a carve-out of a CPA form. So a CPA firm. So we have a um, kind of a unique structure in and of ourselves. I think we're the only company that really does this. But realistically, if anybody Google's defined benefit plans, cash balance plans is a very important topic. That's typically where they're going to find them. I mean, you're not going to see. You're typically not going to get mailers, you know, you know, something in the mail about these. You're typically going to stumble across it because of something you found online or a colleague. Again, we have a lot of physicians probably for Imperian on the defined benefit side, probably about two thirds are physicians. And of course, we get a lot of referrals uh, from other physicians and other um, high end consultants or high income folks. But you're right. It, it's it's very tough and it's very unique for a lot of folks, you know. Yeah, and and so Paul, we'll include the the link. But again, what was the what's the name of your firm? So that I'm sure people are going to be like looking looking it up. Correct. Yes, it's Imperion. It's e m p a r i o n. dot com is our website. Certainly, you can Google my name to find benefit plans. You'll see a lot of articles. As Adapia said, I've written a lot about these plans for Kiplinger, Inc. Magazine, variety of different types of things. And again, we've got clients that. You know, we'll put 200 grand into a plan and turn around and put it into a, a syndication deal, a debt deal, you know. So there are great mechanisms for people who want both the large tax deductions and the ability to, to sort of self-direct their investments. That's really good to know. That's really good to know. Actually, you know, we were talking, you know, you kind of mentioned 
just to go back to, yeah, to the defined benefit plans is what types of investments can go into this and just kind of a fun question. Can you put crypto into these plans and, you know, into the defined benefit? I know some SDIRAs uh, maybe allow it. it would just, just kind of a fun question for you there. And like, what else can you put in a defined benefit plan? Absolutely. You could do crypto. I've got a few people that do do Bitcoin. I've actually had some people that have done a lot of day trading in their plans too. And I will tell you, even though it's allowable, it's a little bit more of a challenge. And the main reason is, I think I had mentioned early on that we're trying to get a retirement benefit of a few million dollars at retirement. So to the extent you, I had a guy recently who had put some money in, I think he had $100,000 in Bitcoin and turned it into a million dollars pretty quickly. Well, I, I told him, you've, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is that's all tax deferred. You don't have to pay any gains on the 900,000. But the bad news is, is that your plan now is substantially overfunded, right? Because we're trying to get this amount at retirement, which what that does is that significantly reduces future contributions and first and foremost, these plans are tax plays, right? People want the tax deduction. They're craving the tax deduction. So while they're very happy this thing went up tenfold, they're unhappy maybe that they can't make those large contributions the next couple of years. So I always tell people, if you're going to do anything with a very big return or any sort of riskier investment, do that in an IRA, a 401k, those types of vehicles you typically want your defined benefit plans to be a little bit more conservative investments. They're baked in usually a 5% sort of assumed rate of return. So if you have a debt deal and maybe it's earning, oh, I don't know, 8, 10%, whatever the numbers might be, usually that's not going to throw the calculations crazy. But yes, if someone hits a home run and some deals, it makes it very difficult. But you can pretty much do anything in these plans, like any qualified plans. You don't want to do collectibles and certain things, but we've got people that do gold and land and hard money and all kinds of things. So, so it sounds like you, it, for those who have been able to, you know, put into their IRA and they have a 401k, like this is another piece of the puzzle. And so it's, it's, you've said it multiple times, which of course, this is what you do. It all comes down to the planning and like, where do you want to put, let's call it like, you know, your crypto or your really volatile, you know, trading. And then what, what I, I guess maybe the natural question is, you know, if, if there's this 5% kind of cap, it sounds like what is, what is a better option for the defined benefit plan versus let's say, like an SDIRA for alts and a 401, a 401k, like what should, if we can use the word should, should people put, think about putting into a defined benefit plan? Yeah. You know, it's got an assumed rate of return, but that is sort of an assumed rate of return to get you to a retirement benefit. So you don't have to limit yourself. Some people think, well, I have to be very conservative and I can only use earn 3% of my investments. Well, that's not true, but because we're looking for an overall rate of return, you know, if you have up 30% one year, down 30% one year, that can really play games with your annual required contribution. So to answer your question, if someone's going to do Bitcoin, great in a, in a 401k or in a self-directed IRA. Also, probably a good idea to do anything, you know, pre-tax, you got depreciation if you've got money outside of plans. That's great to do in like an equity deal that we discussed. The What I think is a great play in a defined benefit plans are debt deals, debt syndication deals, 
hard money, although it can be difficult if loans, it can be a little bit more difficult if people have loans that are going you know, upside down because there's some valuation issues. Things that earn a little bit more of a steady return, and of course, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. But you know, we have seen, you know, like I said, I got day traders that that put money into these plans, and there's a lot of swings. And so some people just kind of have to take the good with the bad. But to the extent you've got a conservative part of your portfolio, which again, people are usually at their peak earnings, you know, kind of in their 50s, you know, late 40s, mid 50s, you know. And so if you're getting a little bit more conservative as you're getting older the more conservative investments are typically what you want in these plans. Keep the Bitcoin and some of the riskier stuff outside of it. Yeah. That's yeah. It's a great, it's great advice. And it's kind of like some of those, the basics, we always come back to the basics around diversification and strategic planning around like your age and which sometimes, you know, can be, we can forget that when we get excited about a deal or we get excited about returns. So I really appreciate you like bringing that up again, because it's really easy to forget because it's like easy to get carried away with stock market up 70% and Bitcoin, whatever to the moon, whatever's going on over there, you know? So um, just, yeah, it's just really a great, great reminder for, for everybody. Yeah. Do you, do you mean to say I'm not going to 10X in, in three months? That's not what's going to happen? <laughs> Well, you know, I have some clients that that don't care. They, they, they're going to do what they're going to do. And as long as I point out to them, I mean, I kind of act a lot like sort of what I try to bring to the table is sort of like a cafeteria plan. I'm going to point out, I'm going to give you a lot of options. I'm going to point out pros and cons, and I'm going to let you make a choice that that fits what you're looking to accomplish, you know? Yeah. 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 Thanks, Paul. No, it's, it's, it's really great. You know, I just wanted to touch on like one really quick thing before we wrap up, we're, before we wrap up the show, you know, we're, we're coming into this period of time right now, February, 2021. It took me a second. You know, we've had a lot of talk about the new administration and, and like people wondering if like everything related to the real estate benefits is going to get stripped away, you know, in, in your professional opinion and what you're seeing, you know, how should people be thinking about that right now? Like, should they be that worried about it? Or what are the more likely, uh, again, it's an opinion right now because nobody really knows, but would love to hear your take on that because there's so many rumors. Yeah, certainly Biden, when he, when he came into office, I mean, he ran on a, on a platform of, you know, increasing taxes for certain folks. I think it was $400,000 and above. And there's been a lot of talk about raising the top tax bracket from 37 to 39.6. You've got a lot of other states, Arizona, where I'm at, increasing a few percent on, on the high end. So you've got, you know, half dozen states that have pushed through tax reform. So there's no doubt that taxes are going higher probably over time. I don't know with the whole pandemic going on, if, if this year is a great year for it, because, you know, a lot of uncertainty out there. But I mean, I really don't see a lot of changes on the, the real estate front. There was some talk about doing away with 1031 exchanges and a variety of other things. There could be some changes to depreciation, but I really don't see it as being material or something that I would be that concerned about. One question I do get asked is long-term capital gains. There has been some discussion about the long-term capital gains rate, which is 15% or 20%, then there's net investment tax and a variety of other things on top of it. So most people might pay 25% or so of that um, rate going to the top bracket of 39.6, but that might be for earners above a million dollars or maybe less or something like this. So you could see some cap. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw long-term capital gains rates go up, which I think is uh, makes deferred 
plans, retirement structures, and things like that. But I, I really, on the real estate front, I mean, I, I don't see the real estate lobbies are so strong in Washington. I really don't see a lot of material changes that's going to affect the real estate business from a tax standpoint. I just don't. But I mean, time will tell. So. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's great to hear, you know, again, it's really great to hear that that's kind of where, where you're going with it and thinking about. So we always ask our guests, so this is like the last question that we always ask all our guests, and that is what does wealth mean to you? How would you define wealth for yourself? What does wealth mean to you? Good question. I guess for me, wealth would, would mean that you have control over your lifestyle. You know, if if you've got wealth, and we'll, we'll, we'll say financial wealth, it gives you the ability to structure your business as you see fit. I do have a lot of self-employed folks. Gives you the flexibility to invest in different asset classes that you want. So for me, it's a little bit of freedom and, 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 and flexibility, I think, on the wealth side. I mean, because... You know, when it comes to wealth, I know in talking to clients, some people think they're wealthy with a million dollars. Some people it's $10 million. Some people think they're rich with 50 grand. So it's, it's less, I guess, for me, how much you have, but you know, what you can do with it and uh, maybe the flexibility and the benefits to your lifestyle that it'll bring. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I always, we always love to, to, to hear that, that from people. It's a great way, great way to put it. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. So Paul, just a final, thank you so much for taking some time. I know it's tax season <laughs> you're in full swing. So we really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today and just giving us such an education on these defined benefit plans and going through the, the tax benefits and all the different things to think about when it comes to, to taxes. And probably the biggest takeaway for me is the planning that's involved and in making sure that, you know, we're working with your CPAs from a tax planning perspective, because there's just so many options out there. And I guess also so many ways to get it wrong. I know I have in the past, you know, before I, before I met you and now I've got everything nice and straight. So just really appreciate you coming on and taking some time to talk to us today. Glad to do it. It's always nice to help people at least understand the taxation, especially on the um, equity and debt deals, because there's a lot of you know misinformation and maybe CPAs in general, sometimes they don't understand it or maybe they don't do a good job communicating it. And then also hopefully a few people understand at least some of the advantage they've, they've got on the defined benefit side. So again, if that's something that they're looking to do, hopefully it's given them a little bit more insight. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll include the links in the show notes to to where we can where where we can point people to to speak to you about the defined benefit plans. And I'm sure you're going to have quite a bit of outreach. I really hope you do. And so, you know, thanks again. And you know, we'll, we'll you and I will be talking soon for sure. But thanks again, Paul. Thanks, guys. All right, Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always 
aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>